Vinny and Greg and the Dare to Dream podcast. Woo! Welcome back to the Dare to Dream podcast. This is episode number 53, and my name is Gregory Russell Benedict. And I am Vincent Van Patten. And the Dare to Dream podcast is a show about what might be and who you could become when you have the courage to follow your dreams. Today we have the special guest, Duke Van Patten. He is my brother, two years older. He's a dreamer like myself, you know, going for what lights his soul on fire. And I've been wanting to do this for a while, so... Duke. Hey guys. Hey guys. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. How are we doing? Pretty fantastic. Uh, you know, it's quite the setup you got here and, uh, yeah, hopefully we can talk about some interesting stuff. Terrific. Well, for diving in, maybe we start with the, uh, the Valley mentality. Tell us a bit about your brand, what you're working on, what it means to you and how it, how it aligns with your dream. Uh, wow, getting right into the brass tacks, the nitty gritty here, <laughs> into my uh, spiritual philosophy that has manifested through a clothing company. Obviously, you guys have uh, promoted my latest side hustle a little bit, which is Value Mentality. It's a clothing company. And uh, it was like on two of your podcasts, right? You pointed out that what it is, which is it's an underdog story uh, representing this place in LA, the San Fernando Valley. And in movies like Clueless, uh, and Valley Girl and whatnot, it kind of gave this message to the world that like, hey, even in LA where like Hollywood is edgy and cool and entourage and like, oh my gosh, artsy and stuff, the Valley is kind of just vanilla and boring and like suburbia. And so my buddy, well, so short answer with all that, it's not too short, but it's a clothing company that represents that. And we're going into more as well. So it's really a lifestyle message and community that we just think clothing is a fun way to share it. But then also my dream with it was to like make it a really good fashion company as well. I have my Valley mentality hoodie in the car. Mm. It will be worn later at the hockey game. Yes. Oh man. That's great to hear. That's a good one. Wears it often. Really mm. wears it well. Got to. We are currently doing a uh, restructuring of it. And so that, that hoodie will be obsolete and Mere minutes. Um, <laughs> Vintage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess it'll be uh, very exclusive then. Um, I started with my buddy Harrison Gamble from college um, on the idea that uh, we just want to get proof of concept. Put very little money into it at first. Of course. Naturally. <laughs> and keep it as a side project and just kind of see like, hey, do people like it? Do people get it? And uh, in two years... Without putting much money into it, we've made very simple designs, you know, a couple track jackets, a couple t-shirts, hats, uh, stuff. People are like, they instantly get the the background and the idea on it of like, hey, even if they're not from the Valley, they're like, that's kind of smart. I've never seen anyone celebrate the Valley before. That's kind of smart. And then, um, but my dream with it was to like make it a really good fashion company as well. And like a good company that can really lean into it and, and create great stuff. Terrific. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. It's exciting to see where it's going. I've uh, seen it, you know, 
since its initial inception. Yes. And it's definitely, I think, in the right direction for it. It's It's got to have a bit more. The heart's always been there, but it needs an edge. It needs something that's really going to. Now you tell me. Send it to- <laughs> 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 I'm just reiterating everything you said. Yeah. Great. So now that we got that out of the way, <laughs> what? there are people who understand who you are a bit. Why don't you tell us just about what you're doing right now, how you got into the acting field, what, you know, where you went to school, all that jazz. Why went to school? Oh, interesting. interesting. Start at the beginning, but yes. not, not too Day early. one. Uh, yeah. Tarzana, California. School. Born LA. Um, yeah. So obviously, um, from Los Angeles, uh, grew up in Malibu. Um, and I'd say to the interesting stuff, like where I uh, dared to dream, if you will, I kind of thought about filmmaking and stuff. I'm, I'm a writer and an actor, and uh, I decided that I wanted to go into maybe being like a storytelling creative person because I, I actually have a lot of interests. But I decided that probably when I was like 16, segueing out, of, I was like a huge competitive surfer loved you know doing competitions and surfing for fun and i was like yeah you know this isn't really going that well and there's <laughs> i don't know if the writing's on the wall for me to continue pursuing this career and i was like yeah. at that time i was starting to th- you know i loved movies i always loved movies i think everyone loves movies for the most part like if you don't love movies you're probably the exception um which is great and, but I really loved like analyzing them and stuff and bonding with people over movies and saying, like, Hey, did you notice this stuff? Do you notice this stuff? And I knew that I, I thought it'd be a good way to express myself someday. And, uh, like some of my favorite movies back then were like, I was obsessed with Seth Rogen stuff. Like I thought you're going to go back to Waterworld. Like, yeah. I could have gone that far back. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, even, you know, when I was Eight so young, old. I would watch movies like hundreds of times. We, we all would. And they were they didn't have to be good by any stretch. You know, the, the notorious box office Kevin Costner flop Waterworld <laughs> envisioning an entire new um yeah, civilization all on water. Dystopia. Dystopia. Hey, the giver was almost there, but he didn't quite get to Waterworld, did he? And uh we would watch that hundreds of times and that that was my favorite thing until I um followed it up with Blade with Wesley Snipes. <laughs> <laughs> watched that hundreds of times too you're like seven years old my, my mom would make me like fast forward to the right parts but um yeah so couldn't even end up watching most of the movie but anyway so i had the bug early on and then it there was a, definitely a moment when i was like 16 where i, I uh we were on a trip to cabo with i was with my friends like Dylan Hayes and Alec Haugie and Reed Hayden Burge and stuff. And they're like, oh, let's do like a funny like Vine or something. And um, we went out to film like a cowboy thing. We were in Cabo in the, like the mountains of the desert. And I had a camera and we had like, you know, bare minimum. Alec Haugie were like, all right, you're going to be the subject. Like get, we're, we're going to film you and we're going to try to make this like a, like a cowboy commercial. And I started filming and of course the wheels started turning and I started thinking, Oh, well this, what would it really be like for a cowboy at this time? We're in Cabo, but we can make this really look. And I started taking it more seriously than everyone else. And everyone was kind of like, uh, let's not actually think about the story here. And I took that cue as like, Oh, I, I think I like this a lot more than most people probably. And, uh, and that just told me that, Hey, I probably shouldn't try to be a pro surfer. It, I wasn't even necessarily like, oh, I'm going to go into filmmaking, but I was like, I can at least go to college and hang out and have like a normal, more 
conventional college experience or early twenties because I was considering like just trying to be like a competitive surfer and travel the world and like pay for myself and try to do competitions. That would have been so idiotic to do that. Um, but yeah, was that an exciting realization when you realized you didn't want to be a pro surfer or was it somewhat hard to grapple with? It's a great question. Um, it was exciting for me. It was definitely exciting. I remember telling my dad that, hey, dad, and it, something about acting too felt a little corny at the time too. Our family was in show business in one way or another. And we kind of always saw it as like just the aftermath of like Hollywood. My dad always joked around about that because he was a big child actor that he was washed up and stuff and all the sides of it that he saw were horrible. He still loved the creative stuff. He was a great writer and would make great and he's a great actor. And our whole family was, but we just saw like kind of the negative sides, you know, the, the, like the, the fat that, you know, is in Hollywood that doesn't get trimmed off all the time. And, uh, and, and, you know, she more power to the people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There needs to, there needs to be a detox of people in Hollywood who real, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, and then also seeing like kids that did theater in high school. Right. And stuff. I feel like where we all came from, it was kind of, they, they love to more power to them the camaraderie of being in theater group and stuff and like performing and they were just like love to do that stuff but i didn't identify with really that much stuff and uh so when i told my dad basically i was like ah, i think i want to be a pro surfer still but maybe i can act on the side maybe i should start trying to go for it and stuff and uh he was like of course he was like so excited <laughs> That I had that realization because I think he probably thought uh, uh, we are talented and stuff. Now we should express it. And I think it probably on, on one level is probably good for everyone to do it. Um, so that was kind of liberating. And then uh, that kind of meant that I, you know, can get out of surfing. And, and I started just kind of gearing myself towards more of a conventional uh, career path. And uh, yeah, so it was fun. I want to dive into that a little more because you said you didn't go the typical route of being in theater, being a drama kid. You had a normal, exceptional college experience, it sounds like. And then after college, you decided to go to acting school. Correct. What was that like? Um, decided I want to do that. Had a, had a good college experience um, at SMU in Dallas, Texas, which I really just wanted like a all-American experience to counter my being just like you know deep dive into competitive sports in high school and stuff and to the point where I, and you know i just didn't really party that much in high school and stuff and i was like oh this is my chance you know i really want to go someplace where they take their tailgating seriously and you know <laughs> academics and you know it felt sophisticated and stuff to go to smu and it was gr great uh but like everything it's not what you expect in different ways and then, so it wasn't all great, but then, um, yeah, when my senior year of SMU, I was like, okay, so I think I want to start with acting as a form of like storytelling. Cause you kind of got to do that when you're young. And, uh, I was like, I could go to like an acting class in LA, which I already done a little bit and hated them. They just didn't feel that creative to me. It felt, ugh, it was just, it's tough to even articulate some of the bad acting classes anywhere. Um, it just feels like bullshit that you're like wasting a ton of money on and you're like, I'm not even, I'm not even doing anything creative. I'm not acting. I'm watching these people who are like robots act and you just feel bad for them and stuff. And then when you do get up the teacher, a lot of these teachers, they don't know how to even 
articulate what they're trying to get across to you. You're not really working for a long time. They didn't, I was never in a class where they really emphasized the writing and the vision. They couldn't even, we weren't even like working on a specific vision. It just was like, it was just crap. It was just crap. And, um, and then I was like, all right, so am I going to go to an acting class in LA or New York? That seems like it could be strange too. And then, uh, I, my mom brought up to me, Hey, you know, I read this book about a, um, a uh, Debbie Reynolds, a, a legendary actress who's friends with our grandparents, actually. And uh, shout out. And uh, she said, well, when, when my daughter Carrie Fisher of Star Wars fame decided to become an actress, <laughs> uh, you know, we didn't mess around in L.A. We sent her to where, you know, the, the finest actors in the world come from England. You know, they trained amongst, you know, the Shakespeareans and such. And so uh, mom, mom was like, why don't you try to do that? <laughs> you thought my dad was uh, upbeat. Wait till you see her mom. And uh, they both were on the they show. They both were on, on the show. And uh, I was uh, like, yes. A lot of my favorite actors are British. Even the ones that are like getting these American roles. And, uh, you know, the second, I don't know. Everything in England just seems like... I'd been told they create actors that were no BS, just very professional, intense, but not heady, not like James Dean method actors of like, oh, you know, you have to get someone in character. And they didn't seem like like kind of wanky artists. They were just like <laughs> well-rounded, clock in, clock out, and they could do anything. And I was like, that probably comes from theater, doing a lot of theater all the time, right? Because you're doing it so much and you get that. But you can't really do theater in L.A., you got to go to where, you know, it's really mainstream England. And, uh, then randomly it was a fun whole experience auditioning to these schools. I auditioned to like the three biggest ones and, and really some stuff went my way there because we, my mom ran into a person at her spiritual psychology school that, that used to be like an associate tutor at a lot of these schools in England that, you know, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, London Academy of Dramatic Arts, and then Bristol Vic theater school. And she's like, your son wants to go there. Oh, I know exactly what you need to do. You need to prepare Shakespeare piece. I'll help him sing. I'll help him do all this stuff. And and we're like, this is a miracle because we wouldn't have figured out how to even contact these people in England on the phone. We couldn't figure out how to get like the the time zones in the right area to get them on the phone. And they, they weren't easy to get a hold of. I mean, these are like classical theater schools over there that are like conservatory training nine to five, nine to eight at night or whatever. And I just thought it seemed like the best idea to just be immersed in it. And it was fun. Cause why not just go to England for a year? And, uh, so I got into the Bristol Vic theater school, which not only is it mysterious and British, but it's not even in London. It's not one of these like city schools. It's, kind of a Hogwarts in the countryside of England on the little, uh, you know, cobblestone hill at the end with a park next to it. And it's founded by Laurence Olivier and Daniel Day-Lewis went there, Jeremy Irons and, you know, all these profound people. And sorry, I'm just going on the, on the whole story here because I, I find it fascinating personally. That's why we're here. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> uh, but please stop me if you, uh, if you're, you know, want to take it any different direction. Sure. Um, so, I get there. And by the way, I, I, so I'm a writer now as well. And, uh, I wrote a show about this experience, a fictional version of a kid of me that goes to England to study acting. And what I found in real life, what my biggest takeaway was 
that these British actors who I expected would kind of be like the theater nerds from high school and stuff that that's all they cared about and stuff. These people that did Chekhov and, you know, um, Stanislavski and all this serious acting training and everything went to Oxford and Cambridge. They're a bunch of like drunken buffoons that didn't care about anything. They, they didn't want to hear about acting. They, they were getting pissed drunk every night and partied harder than my friends in college. And then, were also amazing at acting. It, they were like film actors too. They'd been making short films since they were kids and they were musicians and they were stand-up comedians and they're rugby players, the guys and the girls, and they all loved sports. And I was when I got there, I was like, what? This is, they couldn't believe, they couldn't figure out why I came there. They're like, so you're telling us that you left Malibu, California, going to prom with Gigi Hadid, which our friend did, to come learn how to act here. In Bristol, England. What are you, what are you thinking, mate? And I was like, well, you're supposed to have the best actors in the world. So I came to, you know, see what's in the water. And uh, but my class was international. And uh, the international kids never felt like they were really at home because the British kids who are there for longer have direct connections to the industry there. They go to work at the Royal Shakespeare Company doing plays. They go to be in Steven Spielberg's next movie. They're doing British TV soap operas there and stuff immediately after. And the whole third year they're meeting with casting directors in England. The kids in my class who are from Canada and Australia and India and Brazil one, um, they felt like uh, they had no connections from the school. No one even knew of the school in their respective countries. And then also they, you know, it's tough being an outsider in England. England's got a bit of that tall poppy syndrome I've heard about. Apparently all the Commonwealth countries have it, Australia as well, where it's like, like don't stand out. Like they're very hard on each other in a funny, they're always taking a piss, you know, like really hard on each other. And combine all of that, in my personal stance too of being there was like, I didn't necessarily care if I had connections from the school because I, I was just so, I knew I was coming back to LA or New York you know, a different thing from England. And I was like, I was just happy to have it on my resume and have a good experience. But it was really kind of exhausting being around my class, which, you know, more power to them. I still keep in touch with a lot of them. And on the surface, you know, you might've thought everything was great, but it was really grueling with them just not feeling like they're at home, not fitting in. None of them really partied. None of them wanted to meet up afterwards. None of them wanted to really work on acting stuff with me. The British kids, they wouldn't talk about acting ethereally and the wanky stuff they would just work they would just do their work when it was necessary and then they'd go to the pub and do it and they like me and when i saw eddie a couple of my good friends that i made that were in the british classes i became you know really lifelong friends with them and stuff they were like i they were me i felt like so uh like you know we like-minded but i couldn't hang out with them really all the time and they had their clicks and so it, it was I felt definitely a little lost there. And then combine that. So there was really a dark time for me for a while there because also the acting stuff, I didn't feel like I really had sparring partners and people to be on the same page as me. I felt really different from everyone in my class. Um, and the acting stuff suffered because of that. I didn't feel that creative. I didn't feel like the like I was really getting to do the the passionate you know, punching bag stuff that I wanted to do, surprisingly. And then you start to conflate life with art and think that like, oh, because I'm bad at acting and acting is everything. You start to psych yourself out even more and more and more and singing. And 
I literally, there was stuff that when I got, and this is, I found very common at drama schools or like immersive schools that because, um, I went there feeling more confident than I probably left in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I learned a lot and I'm so thankful for that experience now. But like when I was there midway through, I was getting sick all the time. I was just not confident at all couldn't get any girls the british girls are like super tough too you know they they all had their own people and stuff and uh and man it was i was just getting beat down left and right um how do you maintain how do you how do you see through that so i would talk to mom every day on facetime and stuff probably she was helping me out a lot through it and she would she would recommend a lot of stuff to read and listen to i started it was the best thing because it forced me to not just casually have good aspirations anymore. You know, I've always been somewhat of a uh, intentional guy, I'd like to say. Like, I, I value the things that I value in my life, and it's not by chance. Like, I, I've been taught it, and I've learned it. But up until that point, it was probably casual, whereas, like, then it taught me, like, oh, I need to value my happiness probably more than anything, much higher than just acting. Whereas they were neck and neck at the time. I thought because I was bad at acting, I didn't like deserve to be happy. I think that was the subconscious thing. And then that uh, gave birth to me at least having to get super desperate enough to really take care of my mindset. And uh, everything else could fall by the wayside. And so after that, yeah, a lot of good stuff happened. Developed my, my psych- psychologically. So the best thing that came out of that was, yeah, figuring out how to find the light again when, when times got really tough. So, yeah, I remember. I mean, I was at school at the time with Greg, and so yeah. I, didn't, I didn't have a hands-on experience, but I definitely remember it was not an easy time. Yeah. Sure, I wouldn't talk to you a bit. Yeah. A little bit. So what you went there for, you know, you came out. Did it, did it change at all while you were there? Did you find any sort of this is starting to work a little bit or was it just a wash and you learned how to just get through it. And then when you came home, things started rolling. Uh, it's a good way to put it. And by the way, it didn't start rolling right when I got home either. Um, yeah. 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 But uh, I, yeah. no, no, no. I just want to like, I don't know. That's, but I see what you're saying. Um, there was like one moment in particular that I had there where I remember I just felt kind of trapped. I felt freaking trapped. And then, I was like going on a walk by myself and it was a sunny day in Bristol and I was like going by the university town and it's cobblestone streets and stuff. And it was just one of those things where like I couldn't think it was just all negative thinking. I was just so caught up in negative thinking and you feeling like no matter how many times you tell yourself like, oh, this is just temporary. It's just a small thing. You define yourself on this negative experience, which, you know, to the outside doesn't even seem like a negative experience. But for whatever reason, I was just so down in the dumps and I recall walking in Bristol and it was sunny out and I had good music on headphones in and I was, you know, I was, I think I was walking to a class actually. And, uh, like the music popped and I just felt so good. And I remember it was like my thinking couldn't get in the way of me feeling good. And I just had a good feeling. And I was like, okay, this is what matters. Happiness. Or just, I know that the other stuff doesn't matter to the capacity that I'm giving it. And, uh, yeah, that was that. And then, uh, you know, you just got through it. It just outlasts the crap. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. You say that often. You told, you said that to me recently and it like definitely helped me out when I was 
down on my back stuff, my recent, you know, hit rock bottom, you just said outlast it. Just keep going. Outlast it. And it's like, wow. It really is all you got to do. You know? That's a good point. Time heals. If you just outlast the dark times, as uh, Maya Angelou says, just just read this in the third door. Good old Maya. Every storm comes to an end, or every storm runs out of rain. I think that's a better quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It is fascinating that we sometimes need these really difficult life situations, these challenges to almost knock us down to rock bottom to really find out what matters and what's truly important. And what I'm hearing mm-hmm. from you is that you realize that your self-worth is not reliant on acting or any external factor. Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. I know. And just the way that you put it is like super simple. And when you put it that way, you hear successful people say it all the time. Like, Hey, I needed to lose to find out what I uh, was made of. But when you're going through it, it doesn't feel like that at all. You know, it just feels like you're trying to keep your head above water and just you're desperate to find something. And I think a lot of people in those situations, they don't even keep searching. You know, they get even just down worse and they don't even know where to look. I was fortunate enough to have great role models, great people around me constantly trying to help me. And at that time, because of art art stuff, I couldn't even articulate how I was feeling. And I reading a lot of different self-help stuff. Actually, a lot of it contradicts itself too. Mm Mm-hmm. Self-help is right. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I think uh, at the end of the day, you got to use it for it. It's just another opinion of how to help your situation. Yep. And why not consult other people who have maybe go- been going through it as well. But a lot of it, my point is, is that was uh, confusing. Some of it's confusing and you can't, you can't even articulate how you feel. Fast forward a couple years later and... By still just staying with that, actually staying with reading and looking at a lot of self-help stuff, I completely have an ownership over my understanding of so many different things. Or if I don't, I know it's not that important anymore. Like at the end of the day, I'm just so much more grounded. It's insane. And yeah, being appreciative of that is so important to you know, living your, your best life, as they say. Definitely want to get to all that because yeah, your life philosophy now is quite optimistic and inspiring. But in those days, do you think like you were trying to fit into a mold of just like being in England and you have to kind of impress these people? And was there like a moment when I was like, okay, I need to focus on who I actually am and find myself a bit? Or was it not that black and white? It's a good point because you, you note that in your book and I loved it when I saw it in your book too, that I took off the mask. Yeah. I think that was a I'm defining kind of moment for you. I think my eyes. no. And that that's interesting. Um, I don't want to say that's not what it was, uh, but I think consciously what it was or what I could see, what it felt like was that I, um, I prioritize different things. It's not that I was desperate to fit in at all costs back then. Actually, it was that, you know, I wanted to have a good time and I, and I had these interests that were same as my friends and everything. I, I, you know, I wouldn't naturally fit in, but or not, and that's fine too. But I think I really got, uh, I came to a realization that I had to prioritize my happiness over if stuff's going well, over my circumstances, let's say. Mm. And my circumstances were good on the surface, but uh, they weren't, you know, it, it could be anything for any person, right? If it's not measuring up with how you want your day to go or with what you're desiring and stuff, then you, yeah. So I now, my mindset is a lot more, uh, um, 
simple and strong. And the old cliches are correct. Like, I think I've just gotten really into the old self-help cliches. They're awesome. You know, like, uh, buy low, sell high. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. So you have this pinnacle experience. You go to this amazing acting school in England and you come home and you alluded to the fact that things didn't start rolling right away. I would love to delve into that and explore that because it's so easy to think, okay, I did this one great thing. This is the tipping point. Now everything from here is going to be easy. Totally. So tell us more. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, after that, and by the way, uh, I did have some good experiences there with my mom saying like, Hey, you know, be open to everything. And I, and I went to like one thing that was, uh, on that advice, I went to like a drag show that someone invited me to. They're like, Oh, we're gonna go to this play, like uh, queen of the desert or whatever. And I normally wouldn't have said yes, but I was like, say yes, say yes. And I said yes and went. And then from that, going to that, one of the people there, the actress in my school was like, Hey, you know, we teach kids acting classes on the weekends. And I was like, first of all, I would never have thought about giving up my weekends at that time. Cause the work schedule was so intense. But then I was like, that's kind of cool that they do it. Cause they were cool people they teach kids acting classes. That's kind of ironic. And so I went with them and it was the coolest thing ever that I did. But so that there was like little things like that, that started to like change because I was open. And then, um, it takes to getting to rock bottom to maybe being open to some stuff that could be healthy, really healthy for you. But then, uh, so afterwards I didn't come back to LA. I went to New York and, uh, I got to stay with family for two months, which was really nice and got to spend time with them that I've never gotten to before. That was something I looked for my whole life. But, um, I got a job at a very coveted place as well. David Mamet's theater company, uh, called Atlantic theater school, which they have a branch at NYU. And I was like, Oh my gosh, if I get a job here, I'm going to get in the New York theater scene. And these are really, you know, hardworking people, sophisticated, interesting, artistic. It's gonna be great. I get there and everyone, again, it was like my circumstances just weren't what they, I wanted them to be. All these actors that were super like cool and niche or whatever, hated acting. They were all kind of jaded. These people kind of were more the theater nerds that we grew up with. I think it is different in the States to do theater than it is in England. You know, in England, even the jocks do musical theater. But in the States, it's kind of like people were just freaking like, eh, like so like not happy. They just weren't happy and didn't, weren't passionate. You couldn't feel the love, the art, the anything. And no one wanted to make theater act or anything. I was just like, I hit a dead end again. I couldn't find any friends that were interesting. And then, um, I was like, this is, Oh man. And it's super expensive in New York and can't even get an agent here. I don't even think people care. They consider like the acting industry too capitalistic. How could it be too capitalistic? I just want to do interesting stuff. And people were like, uh, literally someone said that to me. They're like, it's kind of going on auditions. It's too much like, like about making money, man. I'm like, what? (laughs) Stop. Just put it, just uh, have common sense. It's like, all right, is anyone normal? Like, do I have to go? I don't know. So left there, came to LA and, uh, and it started getting, man, it's tough in LA too. I'll be honest. (laughs) <laughs> it's freaking tough. Um, things turned around a, because my dad also recommended some self-help stuff that really was just like positive, just old fashioned Judeo Christian principles. Like, you know, have faith, 
Like I always aspire to have the faith that like great athletes have and stuff like, Hey, even when they're injured or even when this is happening, they, they know that they'll be rewarded for the dark times they go through and also helping others, just simply helping others. And even in competition, like, you know, if, if you help others, good stuff will come to you. And it's actually selfish in a positive way. And also, uh, just staying at peace. Peace is number one thing and enjoying the day. Life is a gift. These things were like so obvious yet. I had never really been practicing them, you know, handfully. And so I started doing that. I started getting really serious about this practice of like success and not just financial success or success in your goals, but, but that's all part of it. Having your best life, having a life that is like, Hey, I'm proud to get there and not necessarily result driven, but having, um, just living intentionally really in a, in a positive intentional life. So with that, it made it much easier to go through my, my day jobs, like working at a car dealership, which was sleazy and kind of, you know, not positive when I would get there, but I would tell myself, Hey, no matter how awkward and weird this is and the manager yelling at me for stuff just because they like to yell and can't take it personally, they're literally like drug addicts and stuff. I'd have to tell myself, okay, I'm literally going to like, what's the practice? I'm going to benefit from this negative experience. I'm literally going to be given double. And that was like a faith thing that I was like, what if I really do believe this stuff? And it started working. It was great. Um, and it was all just healthy, commonsensical stuff, but it was just the practice of it that made it better. And uh, and then, creatively-wise, what helped was, honestly, we Vinny was in it too, and Harrison, we started with this sketch comedy class. That helped a lot, because I'd been doing improv, and so I was trying to find creatively something that I wanted to really make good stories and really interesting stuff. And I wasn't getting that in crappy acting classes that I got into in LA, even when they were the biggest teachers and stuff, it, was, it just didn't feel very satis satisfying. And, and I kept hearing for these acting classes, Hey, you just got to do them. And like osmosis, it's going to pay off in the long run. You're going to feel great. You know, $10,000 later and you know, <laughs> like 5,000 hours of acting class where you just watch other people, you know, piss away their self-esteem and become lost souls in LA, be this horrible industry. It's, you're going to be great. And I'm like, it wasn't me necessarily saying no to it, but it was like by us doing like some comedy stuff that really felt great and, and just, it made you better. It made you creative. It made you like all your urges that you have in life and stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, I get to express myself through this. And it was very straightforward. And then a teacher from that comedy that I had, who's a super smart dude, he, he's like, oh, I teach acting uh, at this other place. Uh, it's a serious, it's a dramatic acting class. And I'm like, well, anything that this guy does has got to be really efficient and a positive thing because he's a smart guy. He can't possibly be going through these other crappy acting gurus that I've heard about and stuff and ugh, that are awful. And uh, and I went and it was it was magic. It was and I was in it for two years. It was uh, basically I tell people it was like you're just working with the director the time you don't really get to on set because they're always busy doing something else. We would work on this writing and everyone would do the same writing. And the, uh, and the director would let you do it a ton of times and you do it at the beginning of class and everyone would go through it. And then we would all go over what we thought the vision of the writer or the director or anyone was, we would all come up with it together and say, Oh, I thought this person did this well, or I thought this person did this well. And you would steal stuff and it was all a positive thing. And then you get to do it again. And the second time the director literally has you trying different things to not only get the vision good, but to get you to your best self and get it to pop. And it becomes less about you of being like this acting actor. And it becomes more about how do we bring this story to life? And you're going to be the puppet that does it. 
and or like we're going to make something even better. But the point is that translated to becoming a good performer. It just did. And uh, so thankful that I got to do that. And they, they loved you writing your own stuff, which I never heard in other acting classes, really. They said you should be writing your own stuff to, to connect the dot from you taking a script and bringing it to life to now you're going to you know, have your own vision and then also bring it to life. And then we were also taking movie scenes that we loved and transcribing those down to writing them. And you just kind of, you know, actually taking a lot of the stuff. It was, it was brilliant, brilliant stuff. Doesn't get enough credit, frankly. What was it? I know <laughs> it was, uh, and I've since found out there's a few acting classes out there that are actually good in LA, but this one was called John Rosenfeld studio. And uh, the guy, John Rosenfeld himself, is cool. Uh, I don't think, you know, he came up with some of these simple things. Like, they're not guru-y techniques or anything. He just happened to be a great facilitator and have freaking common sense because he was, like, a, trying to pursue acting himself. And all the teachers are like that. They're all solid. Uh, and they're all, you know, trying to make it as actors themselves. And they also have a business class there that I did that got me really goal-oriented. You'd come in each week with... Uh, with how you did on last week's goals and you'd have 15 minutes to like you you would go over you know you'd get help from the other people in the six person class or whatever on how to you know get better any advice or whatever towards those goals and you'd have yearly goals and stuff and it was just so such practicality in a in a space that is normally just a crapshoot so that was a great I should probably start putting those into my own stuff. No, since then I've had great practices, but uh, yeah, that was kind of the foundation of it. Very fortunate. How did you start the Instagram reels of you playing two different characters going back and forth? Because that's one of the most creative things I've ever seen. If I may say, yeah, on that point. So basically what, what I'm gathering here is your expectations of these gurus, these schools, these experiences have always just kind of fallen short. You're like, damn, nobody has the same vision as me. I'm trying to get to this point. Does nobody else see it that way, that way either? And then what you did is you kind of stopped trying to expect. Yeah, I want to say you lowered your expectations, but you started bringing the magic out of yourself and creating what you really wanted to. And you, you used your negative experiences from the car lot and everything and turned those into characters. And that's when people, that's actually like, on the outside, it looks like when things started to change, like when you started doing these impersonations and started, you know, shining your light. And so how do you, how do you kind of keep that spark even when things get kind of tough, but kind of find your way and put your own mark on things, I guess. Totally. Creatively. Yeah, there was a bunch there. Uh, I think, well, for one, yeah, that's a good point that I, it wasn't as much, and again, same thing like with England. It wasn't like a switch went off as much. I was always on the same kind of, I always wanted to make the best for myself, you know, whether it's intentional or not. You know, you're just trying to survive. But also, like, I was like, okay, I'm trying to make this good. But then, you know, a couple, one thing falls your way. It's one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back. And uh, I, with the comedy stuff, it, it woke me up in a lot of ways. And, because funny enough, even I tried to do great comedy improv school, UCB, it's where Amy Poehler went to and all these people, they, they invented it. I went there and I was like, all right, the, the theater stuff, the heavy acting, that was all felt like bullshit to me. You know, even they were bad actors and I didn't really get anything out of it. But this comedy stuff, UCB, you know, all of my real, you know, acting, I could, I could identify with that and they're going to be great. Then I went to UCB classes one through four to the whole school as well. It sucked. Freaking soul crushing. And it might've just been that I had bad teachers all the time. And I, 
my my number one thing is like I always stick with stuff for the most part. Like I try to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And I'm in a, in a fortunate position to be able to do that financially. I was I don't for these other people that come out to LA and have no backing or anything and are slaving away at jobs. Maybe maybe they might get out sooner or like get out of the bullshit sooner. And I give them credit because of that. But I was able to hang around longer because my family would supporting me and stuff at the time. It was nice. But, uh, after that, so back to Greg's question, how'd you get into the characters? So then, um, it was, it was really because John Rosenfeld acting class. We would, uh, we would make these, uh, scenes that, or we would write a favorite scene of ours down and transcribe them and and then we'd perform it in class so like i'd do a scene from goodfellas or from the social network or something and uh hopefully or from it's always sunny in philadelphia and hopefully take in some of what you saw in that performance by outside in approach like if you you know sometimes actors get so in their head about what technique they were doing and that was me for a long time coming out of drama school and all these like new york acting classes and stuff they would have you go step one step two step three step four and it would really, at the end of the day, the the outcome of that I saw was actors finding reasons not to, not to try, not to try. It, it got them further away from just being casual and just doing stuff. That I saw that in singing as well. All the singing technicalities have made people become less uh, gutsy to just do it. They were just too precious about it. And then the opposite happened at John Rosenfeld. Like when you take those scenes from "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia." or from Bridget Jones' Diary, or from Sideways or something. These are some of the best scenes written, like, in those genres, like, on anything. Like, on paper, those are you can't get those scripts. And I would, like, see them, and uh, then, also, by the way, also the rest of the industry tends to say, oh, impressions are... Uh, some people love impressions, but then in certain lights as well, it's considered not pure acting, so people kind of shit on them. But... You would definitely by reenacting like a scene from, you know, Hugh Grant and Bridget Jones' Diary or Notting Hill or something. You would – these guys are incredible performers. They're incredible characters. So you you actually like just by you, – you take the technicality out of it, the, the what technique you're doing, and you just act like it by giving it the old college try. And it might be crap. It might be good. It might be – you might have to try some other stuff but not even sure how to intellectualize it. And it ended up being so beneficial. I would do it all the time. I would – I was more excited than anyone. At first, it was not actually easy because I was so psyched out of all acting technique and all, I thought this was just maybe another tool, like an acting tool. So I, maybe I did it on like a scene that the teacher suggested for me at first of like, oh, you know, do this Robert Downey Jr. scene from like the 90s. or in, in, uh, He said it from this one TV show, uh, Ally McBeal. And I was like, I, I haven't even seen Ally McBeal and it sounds like one of those kind of like indie like oh this is another and i didn't really resonate with it even though it was robert downey jr who's like clearly a funny character and maybe i'd get something great to say i was going to try to take away from it how to like perform super confidently and like you know like fun off the cuff and which is going to be my casting type when i would go audition is like people see me as like a confident you know good looking bloke and you know i'm gonna have to have that in my back pocket being like the, the charming boy next door and so it was, it was a great idea but then my point is is after doing that, the penny dropped and I started to see, oh my gosh, I could do this for like any movie. And I love movies. And there's parts, there's parts from movies that inspired me to actually want to be an actor when I saw these great characters. And I 
saw, not always intellectually, what made them interesting, heartfelt characters that people wanted to watch. And I saw, and I thought, yeah, that's what I love about storytelling. I would love to perform the, these subtle, nuanced performances and have people witness that in real life. That now it's starting to make sense. And I started having those experiences through doing those movies and stuff. And then, and then also the other, I would bring. Now, naturally, all my acting performances were getting better and better. And so I took it to the nth degree. I started on, and this was when TikTok was getting bigger too. I was starting to think, like, I don't know if TikTok's necessarily my thing, but because I, I couldn't quite find out how to flex my muscle into it. But I was like, I want to reenact these movie scenes. And I don't, again, relying on yourself, I can't always find another actor. I don't really have any great friends that are actors. I, my, one of my best friends from SMU is actually an actor now, but he's kind of all over the place. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and I was like, okay, it could be kind of a clever thing and maybe even a good tool to play both parts. And it'll be good to be learning about filmmaking as well and editing if I can make the scene make sense with me playing both parts. And maybe it'll even have a little novelty factor and be funny. And so I started doing them. And it was awkward to post them on Instagram at first, but I did them. And and uh, then I made a goal of like, hey, can I do like two a week? And oh my gosh, it makes you so much better at... Then I started being like, oh, well, what are, what accents can I do? And, stuff. and it's like, why not try? It was such an easy place to fall on your face because it's mm. like there's no class telling you what to do or not do and stuff. It's pure fun. I love it. And it reminds me, <laughs> back to the third door from last week. So finish the book, Greg. Great. And uh, one of my favorite interviews, this book, The Third Door, this guy goes on like a quest to interview the world's wisest and most successful people. He talks to Quincy Jones in the end. And the whole time he's trying to, he's talking to Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, you know, getting like business advice. And Quincy Jones just basically tells him like, go out there and live life, explore cultures unlike your own, travel, learn about the world and just learn from your mistakes. That's all. That's all it is. And then Alex Benign says, from that moment, I swore to myself that from now on, I would be unattached to succeeding and unattached to failing. Instead, I would be attached to trying and growing. That's all you can really do. That's all you can really do. Keep yeah. trying, throwing things at the wall, seeing what sticks. It is. It's tough, though, because we attach all these ideas to success. Like, hey, once I get to this point, then, um, then I'll have a creative team behind me like-minded people who make me better than what I'm doing. And, uh, or if I'm friends with these people, then, you know, we'll, we'll get to go to the, you know, the right parties and I'll meet interesting, creative people and, you know, great people in that way. And you just, so you attach all this stuff to it. And, uh, but in reality, getting humble and just like trying stuff is, it's great. Cause by the way, it's not always easy to even figure out how to try. It took a lot of thinking and a lot of talking about it to even figure out what, how to take the first step. Yeah. Not easy to try to get a new job, to try a new acting class, to try to you know ask a girl out, to do any of these things. To try, yeah, to try, <laughs> to trudge, to try, and it's uncomfort, it's discomfort to try yeah. anything new. Going to the Toastmasters this morning, I went for the last one of the year, and it was epic. Got a friend in the class, and you know, didn't know have, you, have you talked about Toastmasters before on this? I, Greg has a little bit. I mean, we touched on it, but it's, it's the public speaking class, which I was not class. aware of necessarily. Yes. Yeah. Today I went for my first time and I was, I was like shaking before going up there. No way. Yeah. I was just like, vision was getting a little blurry. I'm like, all right, well, the only, it's just kind of get up there. And go. I just got up there and like 
when I went up, I, I like calmed down. It was complete like opposite effect. So I was just excited. And then it was just like, make this fun. Just try, you know, grew from the experience. You did great, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> and so I'm currently going through the subtle art of not giving a fuck. It's hugely popular self-help book by Mark Manson. And one of my biggest takeaways and something that's coming up in this conversation a lot is that no matter what path you choose in life, there's going to be struggle. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be times where you're doubting everything. And what he says and what I totally agree with is make sure that you pick something worth struggling for. Make sure that the hard parts of what you're doing are at least something that you get value out of. Yeah, that's uh, that. But even that to me, honestly, doesn't sound easy to do like that's a lot of critical uh, thinking that's a lot of trial and error to even get to the point where you figure out hey this is worth it because by the way for the first three years after drama school for me i thought acting was probably not my thing i was so psyched out of it i was like i should take the freaking hint and figure out something but it took longer and a couple random wins for me to be like okay i this is a worthy pursuit and i still don't know but at least i have other stuff going on too he's not out of the woods yet (laughs) frankly (laughs) never the clear i'll go through it still for sure no i uh but what some people might call like spreading myself thin i have a i have a plan b i have a plan c and i they're less plan b's and plan c's and more of hey I'm an entrepreneur. I like to open myself and be creative with a lot of stuff. In certain times, does it feel like, hey, maybe I need to just have one strong pursuit? Yeah. But then also, I don't have a choice. I just said this to someone the other day because you're in a creative industry or in any industry probably, when something slows down in one area, you got to sidestep and go to something else and keep like trying and hopefully they'll lend themselves to each other. Interesting. And it reminds me of also the third door. It's fresh in my mind, but there's not, you just, you know, it's easy to think that there's like a tipping point in anything that we do. Like, okay, if I just keep slogging away, there's going to be a point where the floodgates will open. Like kind of how I said earlier, like you came back to LA and things just got good. It doesn't really happen like that. All it is, is a constant. If something's that worth it to you, or even just like interesting, it's just a constant chipping away, a constant just pushing instead of like a real tipping point then. And then I guess at some point you'll, I mean, you'll have one of those, you know, one snowball. Yeah. One shining light moment where it's like, at least that happened. And I could see my, I could see why I'm doing this, but totally your own scoreboard. Yeah. The floodgates are never just going to open and the overnight success thing. I I do think it's always going to be a push. It is going to be a constant push. And that brings to mind what Greg just said too, of make sure it's a worthy pursuit to push. But I also think uh, as far as like manifesting and visualizing or just hoping, I think hope's great. And I think thinking that, hey, that it's only going to be a push stops people from hoping sometimes. I think it is good to put your best foot forward and think like, hey, you know what? It's going to be a breeze at some point. It's going to be a breeze. It's going to be a breeze. It's going to be a breeze. Even when it's not because you want to have a clean slate. And, and quite frankly, you know, it, it might be eventually. It might be a push, but yeah, definitely the way I get through it and like how I, you know, maybe I haven't seen like a, a floodgate moment, but like, I'm like, doesn't, doesn't matter. The reason I'm doing this is because I find more joy in, in writing than, and just exploring life and questioning than in anything else. And for me, it's just like just recently, in like the last 
couple of weeks have been kind of overwhelmed from reading that book and just like feeling like, damn, am I not doing enough? Like I should have been sending my book out to 25 different publishers and like, doing all those things. But it's like, I'm only putting the pressure on myself to reach this level of success. And like, is that what benefit is that giving me? I'm obviously on the path. So are you and you that we're supposed to be on. And it's all just, a, that's why I like the Quincy Jones thing really hit me. It's like, all it is is a growing experience, whatever we're doing. And if you just learn from every little dip, then, you know, you'll get, you'll just keep going. I think something that I've, uh, that I heard recently too, which is good. Even when you have a negative experience or like you feel stressed out, like something that you wouldn't rate as feeling good. Um, cause you mentioned you felt stressed out, take the negative from that and say, Hey, I, or take the positive from that and say, Hey, I can still try harder, but also take the guilt out of it if you can. Mm-hmm. I can compartmentalize that and say, like, you know what? I'm a work in progress. I will uh, aspire to get better. And maybe I'll even write down some ways I can literally do that. But um, don't put too much weight on the result necessarily. You know, it's good to have deadlines and stuff, but then in goals, but also to be at a place where you can be okay with, you know, not being perfect. And I think any of that stuff, it only gets detrimental if you end up feeling like, you know, tip over in the negative side. But at the end of the day, like, cause it is all gravy, our pursuits, our goals, and it's all gravy. At the end of the day, you're not owed another day. It could all be over, over tomorrow. So what does that tell us to do? You gotta just laugh and take nothing for granted, you know, or like just enjoy the day or don't, but <laughs> the option's yours. <laughs> the option's yours. And uh, yeah, with the pursuit stuff, just, just try to treat it like a little bit of a, don't be so married to it. It always comes back to treating everything with a light, light touch. touch. <laughs> light yeah. touch, playfully. Meek. meek, be meek, light. Yeah, and don't take it too seriously. I, I love what you said about hope. I'm a very optimistic and hopeful guy. I, it's, it's a practice to be hopeful. It doesn't come easy. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but I also feel like it can that can turn into the if-then fallacy of if this happens, then I'll be happy. I struggle to do this but something that's coming up for me right now it when life gets really hard for me i try and fully embrace the suck and almost see how bad things can get when i'm stressed and overworked and my fitness routine is out the window it's like okay let me just drill down into these core activities and just instead of trying to pretend everything is fine heighten my awareness and look around and actually see it for what it is and i think from realizing how challenging or hard things are, you can use that as a springboard mm-hmm. to go forward instead of being like, oh, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. It's like, let's not think about it getting better. Let's focus on right now. Mm. And focusing on right now is how you make it better. Well, I'd say most people in there in those holes, they they try to figure out why it's like that. They go into the whys. They go into thinking like comparing, well, these other people don't have it. Uh, and they go into like just feeling crappier and they go into the hole and the hole and the hole. And so the only thing that the hope thing does are outlasting. Those are just tools to make uh, floating through that hole more manageable and easier for sure. And yeah. it, it's worked for me. But that being said, I'm so I'm curious when you say that, hey, being hyper focused, is that to also uh, learn to appreciate kind of all feelings in life 
or uh, can you explain further? Yeah, definitely. And I loved what you said is the, the spiral, the digging the hole deeper is when you ask why. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? What I'm saying is embracing what is and just yeah. saying this is where I'm at currently. Don't wonder why. Don't try and find the answer to it, but just deal with it and not overthink it. And yeah, that's what that's what I'm trying to get Cool. At. No, that's, that's good to hear you explain that because that's something another tool that I've, I've read about as well is just out, outlast the crap you don't necessarily have to figure out why just one foot in front of the other keep living and it'll get better like time will heal type thing like swim to the end and and one thing that is coming up too you'll never know that that's the good time like we hear all the all the stories of really successful people who look back on what was the most grueling physically demanding part of their life when they're in the boiler room that's that's what they look back on fondly mm -hmm. and if you aren't fully experiencing it in the moment and you're constantly just thinking about okay when i make it when i make it you're going to get to that point and you're going to realize you missed out on the whole totally. uncomfortable ugly journey at times well in the reality too you say like in the boiler room it's not always like oh my gosh we're working passionately long hours but we are passionate yeah. like you know doing what we uh, aspiring to no it's like like working nine to five at a car dealership where you're not getting to do your main passions and you're like fit in someone's treating you like you're less than human. And you're like, oh, I can amount to so much more. I'm not living the life that I'm. it's like every mental psychological thing is going against what you want to do and still recognizing that, Hey, this might be valuable when I see 20 years from now or however long looking back, this might actually be it just gives you a little bit of that separation from your feeling that the negativity is so bad. Yeah. And being able to laugh at that situation, just yes. like, wow, yes. this is insane. What I'm having to do right now Distract to sustain yourself. my dream. Now, it, when we come back to the car dealership thing for me too, I would write, I started trying to get creative. How can I make myself enjoy this? And a little bit of it, it wasn't in, great in the moment, but just writing down what the people would say there. And we ultimately turned it into a TV show. Yeah. And it, and a character, you know, that what the guy who took me under his wing at the car dealership would say it was so absurd and it would annoy me at the time, but I was, you know, <laughs> you know I, I could even tell you um, like, what you would say. Uh, do it. Uh, we'll, we'll finish with this at first. Oh, it's good. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, oh yeah. Vinny did just here the other day. So like he would tell me, he would tell me who I have 25 other passions. The car dealership is the last thing that I'm actually passionate about. He, he would sit me down. They couldn't figure out why I was there. Cause I was like, you know, graduate college and grad school and stuff. And they thought they must've thought I was under parole or something. And they're like, so, and he, he's, you know, from the middle East and great guy, Dennis, uh, <laughs> hope he's not listening to this, but, uh, Duke, let me tell you, you have to have passion in life. The car dealership can't be everything for you because you know me, you know what I am passionate about It's cooking. I love to cook. If I if it were up to me, I would be making lamb fatouche and fatouche salad for my entire family for days on it. And I would say, Dennis, well, why don't you get to do it? Can, can you ever, uh, you know, open up a restaurant? It would take too much work. Duke, I don't want to do that. No, it's not that important to me. And and then there was like one other time where <laughs> I'm like, Dennis, hey, so we're getting out early tonight. What are you, you going to do after this? Well, by the time I get on the road... Takes me about an hour and a half to drive back to Valencia in traffic, which I immediately start cooking. And I go, Dad, but you have a lovely wife, right? Like, why doesn't she make you like a great meal like so that it's ready by the time you... 
She would only burn the food. So as soon as I get home, I start pouring myself a vodka with bitters, which I down instantaneously. And then I start cutting out the lamb skewers. Around this time, I start pouring myself the second vodka with bitters, which I nurse and I <laughs> drink. As I prepare the mint jelly, and <laughs> anyway, that was it. But I was like, I wrote that down, and we haven't put it in the show yet. But that it was. This stuff is gold. You know, these people have passionate, interesting experiences that you can't make up. So, at the very least, it gives you life experience. Is my point. And what is this show you're referring to? That <laughs> <laughs> I keep teasing it. Uh, we we did a, a fictitious version of myself, a comedy, a half hour comedy. A kid comes to LA to become an actor, and he gets half off an apartment building at his crazy uncle Jimmy's place in the valley. And it's a and the show is about him trying to make it as an actor, but the circus animals that live in this apartment building with him and his uncle, one of them played by uh, Caitlyn Jenner who plays a fictional version of herself as well. And it's so funny. And we're really proud of it. It's called Duke of the Valley. And my job in the show is like my side job is I work at a car dealership. And so I, I imagine we're going to make, we, we filmed the pilot already and we're shopping it around and we're proud of it, but we're probably going to make the, uh, the dentist, uh, like the boss of the car dealership, you know? Yeah. Amazing. Yes. Well, <laughs> that was a, a raucous episode. We had a lot of fun. We got mm. a hockey game. But thanks for coming out. We've been wanting to do this for a while and fantastic stuff. something. So mm. yeah, hope we did done too, well. Fans. Oh yeah. Enjoy out there, folks. Hope I didn't talk too much. I not not at all. It's just the right amount. Thank you everyone for tuning in with us today. We will talk to you soon and we love you guys. We love you.